0: Lord Jesus, we do thank you for washing us clean by your blood. Lord, we recognize that we were your enemies from birth, from the moment of conception. Lord, as David says, we were conceived in iniquity, Lord, in sin. We were conceived your enemies, we were born your enemies, and until you, by your Spirit, caused us to be born again, gave us eyes to see our sin and to see the beauty of Christ, and granted us repentance and faith, Lord. At that moment, uh, we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of you. Lord Jesus, you made us your friends, you made us your slaves, you made us sons and daughters of God, our Father in heaven. And we thank you and we praise you for what you have done. Lord, help us to have hearts full of gratitude. Please forgive us when we forget the enormity of the gift that we have been given, and when we start to turn our eyes from you and to focus on our own desires and our own fleshly lusts and what this world wants us to be doing, Lord, we were bought with a price. The world doesn't own us. The devil doesn't own us. We don't own ourselves. You own us, Lord. Our lives are to be lived for you. And we pray that you would help us even... Uh, through the message this morning to see how we can better live for you and bring you glory, Lord, um, because that is why you redeemed us, to purchase for yourself a people for your own possession, zealous for good deeds. Lord, may you make us that kind of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're beginning chapter 4 today, the first five verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll read those first five verses for us. Paul writes, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts And then each man's praise will come to him from God. For most of us, there is very little that is more upsetting than to have someone assume the worst about us when we know they are wrong. We don't like to be misjudged. But on the other hand, we usually don't mind so much if someone praises us when we know we're not exactly worthy of that praise. We think to ourselves, well, I'm glad they have such a high regard for me. Paul, however, did not want either of those judgments made about him, whether they were unjust criticisms or unthinking praises. He didn't want either one of them. I want to show you this by uh, turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians, not 1st, 2nd, chapter 12. And in this letter, we find that the Corinthians, they've begun listening to false apostles, false teachers, and so Paul is placed in the awkward position of having to defend his ministry in order to rescue them from this false teaching. And if you were to read through chapter 11 and chapter 12, you would be able to tell that Paul would rather not have to talk the way he talks in those two chapters. He even goes so far as to try to distance himself from himself when he recounts to the Corinthians an incredible vision that he had been given. If you look at chapter 12, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now Paul is clearly talking about himself here. But again, he's distancing himself from himself because he doesn't want to be boasting about himself. But he finds he needs to because these Corinthians are getting wooed by false apostles. Verse 5, and he goes on, On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. And even regarding this vision, Paul will not go into details because no one else was witness to this experience he had. He had it on his own. Nobody else saw it. And so Paul does not want to give anyone a reason to think more highly of him than they should. And so look at what he says in verse 6. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. If he were to go into detail, He wouldn't be lying because this really happened, but he holds off. Why? I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul only wants people to judge him based on what they see in him and what they hear from him. He doesn't want unjust criticisms and he doesn't want unthinking accolades. He wants them to think accurately About him. And when we come back to 1 Corinthians, we see that this is the very goal that Paul is trying to accomplish in 1 Corinthians 4. The Corinthians have been boasting about their preferred leaders, they've been making judgments about their leaders, judgments that they are not qualified to make. In all of chapter 3, and here at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is seeking to correct the Corinthians thinking on how they evaluate their leaders. And he gives them two more commands on how to humbly view their leaders, which will, in turn, give them a more humble view of themselves. And that first command will take up the first four verses, and that's this. Judge your ministers precisely. Judge your ministers precisely. Look at verse 1, how Paul Begins. He says, Let a man, back in 1 Corinthians 4, let a man regard us in this manner. That Greek word for regard, it's logizomai, and it's a word that carries the sense often of making a calculation. One lexicon defined this word as to determine by mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate. Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner. Let a man calculate us, reckon us, think about us in this manner. Paul does not want the Corinthians to miscalculate who he, Apollos, Cephas, and the other teachers are. These people that they have been boasting in. He wants them to judge rightly, precisely, accurately, To judge someone or something rightly, you need to have all the right information. Most of us had to take algebra in school. Whether or not you passed that class, I won't ask. But most of us had to take algebra. A very simple equation would be this. 2x equals 10. 2x equals 10. What is the value of x? 2 multiplied by what equals 10? Five, wow, very good. Five. Unless you had the two on one side of the equal sign and the ten on the other side, you wouldn't be able to determine what value X has. Well, Paul is saying that, the, that there's one equation and you need to have right information, but you Corinthians are putting the wrong equation. Values into this equation so you don't understand what a servant of the Lord is. You don't understand who me, Apollos, and Cephas are. Worldly wisdom has given you wrong information. And you're thinking according to that worldly wisdom and you are arriving at wrong conclusions about who I am, who Apollos is, who Cephas is. And even as we saw way back in chapter 1, wrong conclusions about who Christ is. You are getting bad information because you are walking according to worldly wisdom and so because of that they are not in a position to form a right judgment about their teachers and therefore they're very vulnerable to getting swept away by false teaching because their pride has rendered them incapable of discerning good teaching from bad teaching so Paul here He's going to give them good information. He's going to give them the two and the ten on both sides of the equal sign so that they can know what makes a good teacher, a faithful teacher. He begins to give them this information. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The Corinthians need to see Paul and others as servants and stewards, not as masters to boast in. Paul says, I'm a servant, a servant of Christ. If you remember back in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, Paul had told these believers that they didn't belong to him. Instead, he, Paul, belonged to them. Paul's ministry was one of service to them, not mastery over them. And yet here in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul clarifies something. Though he belongs to the Corinthians, though he's in service to the Corinthians, he does not ultimately answer to the Corinthians. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ. Paul answers to Christ. Paul is intent on yielding himself not to the Corinthians and what they want him to do, but to Christ and what Christ's will for him as an apostle is. He says, Regard me as a servant of Christ. He also goes on, he says, Regard us, regard me as stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. What's a steward? A steward was often a slave whom the master of the house would put in charge of all his property and all of his other slaves in order to see to it that the master's business was carried out correctly in his absence and to see to it that the other slaves were properly taken care of. And so Paul, by calling himself a steward, he's both reminding the Corinthians of his authority in the church as an apostle but he's also reminding them that his authority is only a delegated authority, that God is the one determining everything that Paul says and does. So Paul is not able, he's not permitted to wield authority any way he wants. He is instead a conduit for the authority of God over the church. God's The one in charge. It's God's house, not his. Christ is the master, not Paul. And as a steward, Paul was in charge of distributing his master's resources, here called the mysteries of God. Now, what are these mysteries? Well, look back at chapter 2 and verse 6. Back there, Paul said, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." So these mysteries that Paul is a steward of are the hidden wisdom of God, a wisdom that this world is unable to grasp or to figure out. Because if they were able to figure it out, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, Paul says. And God's wisdom, if you were to go back even further to chapter 1 and verses 22 to 24, you see that God's wisdom, this hidden wisdom that the world has rejected, This wisdom is Christ crucified. That is the mystery that Paul is a steward of, that he's responsible to distribute carefully and correctly and completely. That is why back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when Paul came to the Corinthians, he came not with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why did he not try to impress them with lofty speech? Why did he only come preaching Christ and him crucified? It's because that was the mandate his master gave him to do as a steward. He was going to do nothing more, nothing less. Back to chapter 4, Paul goes on in verse 2 to point out to the Corinthians that there's something else they need to take into their calculations as they are regarding Paul and Apollos and Cephas and other teachers. There's something else they need to consider. He says, "...in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful." That is the number one requirement for a steward, faithfulness. When the master leaves all his property and all his other slaves into the hands of his steward, he wants to know that the steward will be trustworthy, will follow his instructions to the T. Some of you here have pets, and when you go on vacation, you ask someone to watch your animals while you're gone. And you probably write up a list of things. Some of you, a very complex list. Some, maybe not so much. But the things on the list need to be done. Every one of those things. And when you leave, you entrust the key to your house to this person. You give them the list of your pet's needs. And you entrust into their hands the very lives of your precious animals. In effect, you have just given a stewardship to this person. And no doubt this person you selected is someone you trust. Now what do you expect of this person, this steward? You expect them to keep your animals alive. That's it. You don't expect them to train your pets while you're gone. You don't expect them to try and revolutionize your pet's diet. In fact, you don't want them monkeying with the routine of your pets at all because you have things worked out precisely the way you want it and you know it works and you don't want somebody going rogue on you while you're away you want the steward to do exactly what's on the list nothing more nothing less you want to trust this person so you don't have to worry about it when you're on vacation that's the way it is in the church the master has given a list to his stewards ministers who are charged with shepherding the flock and that list is the bible the master wants his stewards to do exactly what's on the list nothing more and nothing less christ does not want pastors making it up as they go along he doesn't want them to try and invent new ways to do ministry He doesn't want them to set goals for his people that he has not set for them. Jesus expects his stewards to be faithful, to simply do what is on the list. And he is going to call every one of his stewards to account to see how faithful they were to do what was on that list. So how do we judge our ministers precisely? How are we to calculate our ministers by looking to see if they're doing what the Bible says. That's it. This is why Paul says what he says in verses 3 through 4. Look at what he says. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. The one examining Paul is Christ. And that is a really big deal to Paul. That was a really big deal to all of the apostles. It was a big deal because they had a crystal clear understanding of who Jesus is. Turn back to uh, Revelation chapter 1, which we read this morning, where the Apostle John gives a description of this one who is examining his stewards. Revelation 1, verse 12. The Apostle John records, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars. These seven stars, he'll go on to say, are um, the messengers of the churches that he's writing to. Most versions say to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, and so on. That word for angel means messenger, and it can apply to heavenly beings or it can apply to human messengers. And I'm of the persuasion that he's, writing to human messengers, and these messengers are in his hand. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades." It's interesting if you walk through those seven letters to those seven churches, the the pronouns, the second-person pronouns um, in those letters, at least it starts out in each one of them as a singular pronoun. He is addressing the messenger of the church. Example, look at chapter 2, verse 1. The one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. I don't know, that kind of makes me want to just slink down from behind this pulpit. That is who is examining Paul. That's who is examining me, Pastor Barney, Owen. This sermon that I am giving to you, the Lord with his flaming eyes of fire is examining. So in light of that, when the Corinthians examined Paul by unfairly criticizing Paul or by unthinkingly exalting Paul. Paul took that for what it was, a very small thing, compared to who is really ultimately examining him. In fact, Paul did not presume to be able to make a definitive examination of himself. Paul has a clear conscience, which is good, but he does not place undue weight upon that. Because Paul understood that on the day of the Lord, Jesus will not be asking Paul to simply hand in a self-assessed performance review and call it good. Nor will he be collecting others' performance reviews of Paul. No, Jesus will be doing the performance review himself. I read Luke chapter 12 I want to read that again with 1 Corinthians 4 in mind. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus, the one who is examining the stewards, he says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so Blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, now this this is Peter, the apostle, a steward. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave, speaking of that steward, if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. In verse 41 there, Peter, he seems to ask if Jesus' Jesus parable is addressed especially to the twelve or to everyone else as well. And Jesus, in answering his question, seems to clearly indicate that there is special application to those who act as stewards in Christ's household. Who is best in a position to know the will of the Master for his church than the stewards of his church, the ministers whom Christ has entrusted the care of his flock to? And as such... Stewards, ministers, have a much higher accountability to the master than the other slaves because they know more. That is why James said in his epistle, chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. In the face of this reality, Paul views the Corinthians boasting in different teachers like they were at a football game to be the height of foolishness. Their boasting in their teachers shows that they are miscalculating how high the stakes are for the teacher and for the ones who are being taught. They don't get it. And worldly wisdom is making them not get it. Paul needs them to to understand this. And that brings us to verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 4, which is the second command that he gives. And it's this do not judge your ministers prematurely. Do not judge your ministers prematurely. Back to our equation. You easily figured out what x equaled in the equation 2x equals 10. But what happens when I change the equation to 2xy equals 10? What value does x have? You have no idea, because you don't know what value y has. You need to know y if you're to figure out x. There's another variable that's tossed in there. And that's what's going on with these Corinthians. They think that they know what judgment to make of Paul and Apollos and Cephas, but Paul says, hang on, there are crucial pieces of information that you don't know. And so your boasting in us is premature. You assume you know things that you cannot possibly know. So Paul says this in verse 5, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. What are the things they don't know about Paul and Apollos and Cephas? They don't know what goes on behind closed doors and they don't know the motives in Paul's heart, or Apollo's heart or Cephas's heart. But the Corinthians are boasting in these men and probably others as if they, the Corinthians, are the ultimate judges who are capable of determining whose ministry is worthy of praise and which ones are not as worthy of praise. They're acting like they are omniscient, like they're capable of determining with unwavering accuracy whose ministries are faithful ones. So Paul says, stop acting like that. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. Now, Paul doesn't mean that Christians are never to form judgments about people or about their teachers, because we just saw in verses 1 through 4, he was helping them judge rightly their teachers. And in fact, in chapter 5 and verse 3, As Paul is rebuking them for not addressing the gross sin that is in their midst of a man having his father's wife, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 3, that he has already judged him. And then if you were to continue on in chapter 5 to verse 12, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul asserts that believers are supposed to judge those who are within the church. So, what's going on here? Paul's saying judge, and then here in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, don't judge. What is going on? Is he contradicting himself? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? No, he's simply saying that there are things that believers are equipped to judge about one another, and there are other things that they are not equipped to judge about each other. For example, if I clearly hear you teach or counsel something that is wrong, I can form a judgment about that because I actually heard that, and I can take what you said and compare it to what this book says, and I can make a judgment, oh, that's faithful, oh, that's not faithful. Or you can see me, if you see me do something sinful, you can form a judgment about that because you actually saw me do that and you can compare my actions with what this book says and you can form an accurate judgment on that. But when it comes to things that we cannot see, that we cannot hear, that we cannot know, those are things we must not form judgments about. That is what Paul is talking about here. Don't make those kinds of judgments before the Lord comes back. Have you ever caught yourself saying something like this? I bet when he gets home, he's going to do such and such. Or how about when you think you catch someone looking at you funny? Do you think to yourself, I bet they think such and such about me? Or when you see someone do a good deed and you immediately slander them in your heart or to someone else by saying, I bet they did that just to look good. I have thought and said things like that. We all have. We need to understand that that is blasphemous. When you think and say those things, you put yourself on God's throne as their judge. That is evil. You think you know what you cannot possibly know. You think you can hear what you cannot possibly hear. You think you see what you cannot possibly see. We have no business thinking we know what someone is doing behind closed doors. And we have no warrant to ever think that we know what motives are in someone's heart. We can only judge what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears. And even then, we are often wrong. How much worse is it to be so arrogant to think that we can see and know what only God can see, only God can know. So many of our relationships are needlessly harmed or jeopardized because we presumed to know what we could not know. How many times have we been wrong? We must stop passing those kinds of judgments on one another Before the time, Paul says. That is, before the day of the Lord comes. When that day comes, the Lord will make those judgments as only He is fit to do as the omniscient judge of the living and the dead. At that time, He will what? What did it say in verse 5? Until the Lord comes, who will what? Both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from God. The Corinthians boasting in certain individuals was imprecise, and it was premature. And their seeking praise from one another was idolatrous. Paul is not seeking their pats on the back, their praise. He's seeking God's praise. Galatians chapter one verse ten Paul said that quite clearly when he said, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. The judgment of Christ is the only judgment that really matters. So it shouldn't matter so much to us if men tell us, well done. That should register very low on our totem pole of importance. The praise that we should really long to hear is our master saying, well done. There will be many surprises on the day of the Lord, I'm sure. We will see believers rewarded in ways we never thought possible because we thought they were dishonoring God behind closed doors and in their hearts when in reality they were worshiping God in those secret places. And on the other hand, there will be individuals who we thought would receive great reward, but they end up not receiving it. And we'll be surprised because we wrongly assumed that they were honoring God between Sundays because of how they acted when we saw them on Sunday. Let's make it our goal not to be surprised on the day of the Lord. If we leave in the Lord's hands the judgment of people's motives and of what they do in secret, we won't be surprised on that day because we won't be viewing our brothers and sisters with prejudiced eyes. If we have a concern about a brother or sister and instead of assuming the worst about them, we actually take the time to talk with them, and to get to know them. We won't be surprised on that day because we will have gotten the chance to be invited behind them, behind those closed doors, to actually see what's going on there. And by getting to know them, we will hear from their own lips what's actually going on in their hearts. We won't have to assume it. And the worst surprise on the day of the Lord would be to think... We would find someone in heaven, only to be shocked to find out that they're actually in hell. We assumed they knew the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners, that he rose from the dead, when they actually did not know. We assumed that they had turned from their sins and surrendered their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, when in actuality they were still pursuing their sins. They were still trusting in themselves how well do you know the person that's sitting next to you or the person sitting across the room? Have you ever gotten past discussing the weather to ask them what their testimony is? Have you ever invited them into your home? Have you ever asked them how you can pray for them? Have you ever seen them sin and you loved them enough To go and show them their fault in private. I know I have failed many times in these things. Have you? I want to be a faithful servant. Do you? We are not strangers sitting next to each other at a bus stop, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ's household. Let's get to know one another. Let's seek to let each other into one another's lives. We need to make it our goal not to be surprised on the day of the Lord. I want you to make it your goal that you're not surprised by what happens to me. You need to look at me. You need to help me. You need to ask me, what's my testimony? You need, when you see me sin, to come to me and love me enough to help me turn away from that. I need to love you. I need to do that for you. We are not being faithful if we just let each other experience the Lord's displeasure or even his wrath. We need to love one another to make sure we are each walking with Christ by faith. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to do that.